This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Mapman, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. All right, everybody, welcome back to our next episode of the TraumaCast. Thank you for listening. Um, I recently uh, started a new job, and one of my colleagues found out that I was a TraumaCast moderator and said, it's my go-to TraumaCast for when I can't fall asleep. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for That's all of you indeed. High praise. There there are other people who have told me they exercise. So whether you are uh, exercising and listening to this or trying to fall asleep, we're about to do a trauma cast on statistics. So it really could go either way. I would Um, say uh, more towards the sleeping part. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, but we're going to try to keep this interesting. Um, I want to introduce also my uh, co-moderator is on uh, Dave Morris. Do I say hi? Hi, Dave. And then uh, we have Dan Holina, who is our guest today to talk to us about stats. Dan, if you could just tell us who you are and where you're from. Sure. Uh, my name is Dan Helena. I am an associate professor of surgery and epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in Philadelphia. And uh, just full uh, disclosure, I am not a statistician. But I did hear from around the block that you're a surgeon who took an interest in statistics and that you'd be the guy to go to. Uh, I do have an interest in, uh, in methodology for uh, observational studies. And so, you know, that's kind of been what I've been doing for the last seven or eight years. Um, I you know, took some time after I got my first faculty appointment and got a degree in epidemiology, which is very uh, statistics heavy. Um, and so I have a reasonably good working knowledge of statistics, um, but again, I'm not a statistician. So, um, you know, uh, there are definitely a lot of things that I still don't know and, and often seek consultation for. I'll just add, uh, you know, when I was a fellow with Dan, he was our go-to guy whenever we uh, had anything to do with statistics that was higher than sensitivity or specificity. So he's being unduly modest right now, as is as is typical for Dan. So oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, the reason I was inspired to do this trauma cast, despite the uh, potential dreadful subject, is <laughs> I have been in the situation where Journal Club is coming up. I've scanned through the abstract. I didn't get to the whole paper. I skimmed the discussion, and I walked into the room feeling like it was pretty reasonable data, and I had an understanding of what the paper was about. And then as the discussion ensued and we really got into <clears> the numbers <throat> and the statistics of it all, I realized it wasn't good data. And I just don't have that skill set to know what's a good paper, what's not a good paper. And then the second part of it is that now that I'm in practice, I have residents coming to me who they say, I want to do research. And I don't have a good grasp of like how to help them set up um, the question, the answer, and then what methods we should be using. So I thought we could kind of hit those two you know, areas uh, today and maybe help out some other uh, listeners. Sounds good. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. Resident comes to you and says, I want to do research. Where, okay. where do you even start? <laughs> What's your next question you ask them? So I always like to start with this story, um, which uh, was told to me by one of my PhD colleagues um, who is a you know, full-time researcher. And what he said was, he said, you know, he's like, what, what would you say if um, one of the guys in the epidemiology department came up to you and said, uh, I want to take out someone's colon? Uh, and I'd be like, oh, I, you know, I guess I'd be a little bit dubious of that. And he's like, why? And I said, well, you know, because they haven't, you know, spent five or seven years in a training program after medical school learning how to do that. 
And he's like, good. He's like, yeah. So he's like, so how do you think someone who has a PhD in epi feels when someone with no research training comes up to them and says, I think I want to do, you know, a, a huge, you know, complicated research project. And I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of see that. And he's like, and then beyond that, he's like, now let's say that that same epidemiologist took you by to see a patient, you know, three weeks later and the patient had a, a surgical scar on their belly. He said, you know, how confident would you be that that operation was done correctly? I was like, yeah, okay, and I kind of take your point. And I, I think, you know, the caveat is that, you know, we as surgeons were sort of taught to take care of things and, and to handle them and to, you know, feel like there's really nothing that <clears throat> we shouldn't be able to do. But, you know, in all fairness, a medical degree is really not a research degree. Um, and so, you know, there is a lot of training and, and you know, knowledge and, and that kind of thing that sort of goes into a well-conducted research study, whether it's an observational retrospective thing or, or, or a prospective randomized controlled trial. So there's really a lot of, um, you know, sort of training and, and things like that, that that go into this. So I guess the first thing that I would say to that resident is, you know, what's your background in this? Um, and if you don't have a strong background in it, um, that doesn't mean you can't do it, but it does mean that you're probably going to need help to come up with something that is going to be, um, you know, something that people are going to rely on and, and look to and say, yeah, that's a good study. We, we, we can use this information. You know, there's certainly a lot of people who are in the medical field who have a lot of, um, you know, uh, methodologic background and, and, you know, none of this stuff is, is, you know, beyond what people can learn. I mean, I've learned it and I'm definitely not, um, you know, the mathiest person in the world, but, but I mean, you can learn enough to sort of get by and then, and then just like anything else, you, you sort of have to just recognize your limitations and be like, okay, I know how to do this, this, and this, but you know, this part of it, that's not something that I, I know how to do. Um, and, and in that case, I would say, yeah, go find someone who can help you. And I know that's hard because I've been in that situation before where, you're sort of looking around for help and, and you know, it, it can be tough to find. Let's, well, let's talk about that for a minute, finding some help, because that is always a, it's, it's, it would be great if we all worked at large institutions and had epidemiologists or statisticians or uh, research fellows on staff to help us. Um, but I've been in some areas where we don't have that. Um, and so one area that I've looked for is see if there's a college in the area that is as a degree or a program in this and somebody's looking for a project or a thesis and can make your research project their thesis and get, you know, two birds with one stone. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And also, you know, we're in an increasingly connected world and, you know, it, it's not that uncommon to find people, you know, having a research meeting by Skype or, uh, you know, over the, you know, just having like a Dropbox file exchange kind of thing like that stuff is it, it, it's pretty easy to find people who, you know, might be willing to help you with what is usually not um, a tremendous methodological lift. So, um, you know, especially for, for residents, you know, assuming you can't find someone in your institution, um, it's definitely worth sort of looking outside the institution because what what we have is, is, as clinicians is really um, something that it's hard, hard to come by outside of the clinical spectrum, which is, you know, insight and understanding of why, you know, a relationship might exist and what that relationship might be. Um, and really without the training and the experience that, that we bring to the table for these um, studies, it, it, you know, it's kind of hard to um, sort of, you know, work your way through a research study on, you know, trauma outcomes if you don't know much about trauma and you don't take care of those patients. Yeah, I would echo that too. I mean, what's interesting to me is that, um, although I 100,000% admire the skills and the knowledge that my uh, statistician colleagues have, it's funny to me because sometimes they will set up their equations in a way that are perfectly statistically valid and make sense from a math standpoint, but are clinically meaningless and, and don't make any sense at all. And so I think having a strong partnership like that is, is critical to making a good, uh, a good project. I, I, the other thing I would add is that um, if you are in an institution that does not have 
good statistical support or easy uh, infrastructure to work with, then that's the perfect opportunity to get involved with like a multi-institutional trial where maybe you're not the primary site and um, but um, you still want to you know contribute to research in a, in a meaningful way. I, I think that's a really easy way to get involved too, uh, depending on how how you know stringent and strict your uh, data use sharing agreement process is. And I'm going to put in a plug right now. We have a uh, Traumacast Twitter account now. It's uh, at East underscore Traumacast. And maybe if our listeners have some ideas or things they're looking for, they can add to the conversation uh, later on uh, Twitter. Okay, let's get into some actual numbers and definitions. I pick up a paper and I feel like I know what p-value is and uh, p-value, the probability value. Like, what are the chances the information that I'm looking at is due to chance and what are the chances it's due to actual meaningful difference? So why can't we just use p-value for everything? Um, I, I would say that you can and some people do. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, you know, but the, the thing is, you know, what we worry about with p-values is that, you know, essentially setting it where we typically set it at 0.05 means that, you know, if you ran, you know, 100 tests, you would, you know, come up with some of them that are just going to be significant secondary to chance alone. And so, um, you know, there's this new phrase that I heard the other day called p-hacking, where people do just that. They, they basically, um, you know, they don't get the p-value they want for the initial test that they run. So then they, you know, change the variable or they go look for a different relationship. And, you know, that's also known as phishing. Um, and so, you know, there are limitations to that. And I don't know if anyone has been following, uh, but there was a recent uh, JAMA article that sort of looked at changing the, the p-value criteria to 0. 0.0005 um, from um, 0. 0.05, just to sort of make it a little bit more rigorous and reduce the chance that uh, associations would be, you know, called out secondary to chance alone. So I think, you know, it, it's a thing. It's just, it's not the end all. And the other thing that the p-value doesn't do um, is tell you whether or not you know, there's a clinically meaningful difference, right? So if you took a, a database with a million people in it um, and, and ran some sort of t-test between the age of two groups, you, you might find that there is a, you know, a p-value of 0. 0.0000001 and the differences between like 59.8 and, you know, 50 or, you know, 60.1 or something like that, which that might be, you know, statistically significant, but it's probably not clinically significant in that, you know, that's less than a year of age. So, you know, that, there's that as well. So, you know, there, there are kind of a lot of reasons that the p-value isn't really uh, the end all for, for evaluation for, you know, the methods and the statistics used in a study. Can I, can I jump in and ask another question? So, um, Dan, do you think that that same uh, truth is, is valid in the opposite direction? Are there cases where the p-value is not statistically significant, but there is a clinically meaningful difference? Is, is that a possibility or is, it, is that a wrong way to look at it? I mean, I, th that's that's a possibility, but um, you know, the, the I guess the flip side would be the the type one error where there is a difference, um, but you just don't have the statistical power to um, differentiate that. But in general, if you have a very large effect size, then you shouldn't need, you know, as your effect size increases, meaning the difference between the two groups uh, goes up. Um, assuming you're doing a tested difference, then then at, theoretically your sample size goes down. So. You know, if you're if you're you know if you're looking at like an absolute difference of like you know three percent, you might need a large sample size to detect that difference. Um, and, and you know whether or not that difference is clinically meaningful, you know, might be a different thing. But um, you know if if it's like you know everybody lives in one group and everybody dies in the other group, you, you really don't need very many patients to sort of tease that out. Um, not that that is usually the case, but except you know if we're talking about Dave's operations versus mine. And <laughs> 
<laughs> we're, we're minor the minor the the people that die, obviously. I wasn't yeah. gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the T test. You went from P value flip right to T test, and just I'm gonna kind of go down some basics and, and give some definitions for the listeners. A T test determines if two sets of data are significantly different from each other. Well, a T test will will give you a P value for the statistics. I mean, I guess the the so one of the pitfalls, I think, of, you know, one of the great things about today and one of the pitfalls of today is that there's a lot of statistical packages out there like SPSS and Stata and R. Um, and, you know, they're, they're great in the sense that they save you so much work and allow for things that just would never have been possible 20 years ago. Um, but the downside is that, you know, they're not that smart. So if you take a data set and you want the program to run and test that really is not the right test to either get the answer you want or just is wrong for the data, it'll still do that and it'll spit out outputs and p-values and things like that. So you have to be a little bit cagey. And so I guess, um, you know, the first thing is, you know, what is what is it that you're, what's the question that you're asking? Um, you know, what do you want to know? You know, are you looking for an association? Are you looking for a difference? Are you looking, you know, th there's a whole sort of variety of questions you might be asking. And, and then, you know, once you sort of have really honed down your question to, um, you know, a very discrete answerable question, then the question becomes, well, what data do I have available? Can I answer this question with this data? Um, and then if the answer to that is yes, then I think the, the next thing is, um, you know, what, what test should I use and what are the underlying assumptions of that test? So getting back to t-test, um, t-test is generally uh, used to look at the differences in the means of um, two groups. And so, uh, you know, the underlying assumption of that t-test is that um, the, uh, the groups, the, the data is normally distributed. Um, so it has sort of that bell-shaped curve. Um, and, um, and then, you know, depending on whether the tests are paired, um, you know, like people are taking the same test twice or something along those lines, or they're independent, meaning that the, the two, you know, the members of the groups are totally independent and there's no relationship between their scores, um, then, uh, you know, you, you would either use the paired t-test or, or just a simple t-test to do that. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of really sort of information that you sort of need before you even sort of get to what statistical test you're going to use. Um, but there's a lot of really sort of handy charts that you can kind of look up online um, for your basic statistical tests where, you know, you, it'll ask you questions about like, what's the exposure variable? What's the outcome variable? Um, and then, you know, what are you looking for? And it'll sort of, you know, give you a quick reference as to what the correct test might be. Um, but, you know, I think this is, again, a case where it's probably reasonable to just sort of bounce it off somebody if you're not really sure. Because um, it'd be a shame to sort of go through all the work of putting together a huge project and then um, have to go back and, you know, rerun your statistics and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I went on a Wikipedia to try to understand the t-test because that was my Twitter um, that I put out as what is a t-test. And pretty much I got sucked into like a click uh, hole on uh, November is Wikipedia's Asian month. And I got ah. stuck there for a while before I got back to the t-test. It is a... It is difficult to kind of sort it out. I think that getting some help with this uh, is a is a great uh, great piece of advice. Um, you be prepared, by the way. You may get hundreds of emails of people wanting you to help them with their statistics after this. <laughs> I would add, Carrie, is that um, you know a lot of times too, each of these statistical tests come with their own sets of pros and cons, and that's where the the training of a statistician really comes in handy because there may be a test that's perfectly valid to do, but there may be other tests that are better for different reasons based on the clinical scenario. And so what I found is that it's almost like a negotiation with your statistician to say, well, here's what I kind of want to do. And then they talk out the pros and cons of the different tests. And then you kind of decide together which which make the most sense clinically. And, and that's where 
that partnership and the importance of that relationship cannot be overstated, in, at least in, in my opinion. I don't know if you'd uh, agree with that too, Dan. It's, it just yeah. seems like there's so many tests out there and so, so many of them, the vagaries of why they're good or bad, um, that's, where, that's where the rubber meets the, meets the road. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, there's a saying about surgeons or something. I, I, I'm going to paraphrase it. It's, uh, you know, if you, you know, if you ask, you know, four surgeons, you'll get six different opinions. Um, right. I think I think that's also true of statisticians. And, I, you know, when I first started out, I, I, it was completely lost on me that there were different kinds of statistician. I was like, you know, a statistician knows all about statistics. But, you know, there are really, really specialized and complex techniques that, you know, one statistician, statistician might be extremely well versed in and another might not really uh, have too much of a handle on. So I think all statisticians are, are, are great um, for, you know, very, you know, basic statistical tests. But as you sort of get out into the weeds, um, there are people who, you know, have devoted their careers to things like instrument variables and, um, you know, fine multivariate matching. And, and that's not stuff that everybody does. And then on the flip side, you know, those those guys who are really focused on those things might not be the best to do kind of other projects like, you know, uh, name it, like, you know, survival models, that kind of stuff that that really are kind of their own thing. You know, every, it, you know, it's, it's like surgeons, like there's not one kind. Um, so, you know, it, what Dave said is extremely true. Like you, you could, um, you know, you could arguably come up with a, a, mu a bunch of different ways to analyze the same data set. Um, and you, you might find that there are better ways and worse ways, but sometimes there is no best way. So let's assume we're, we're looking at a journal article in a reasonable journal that presumably was reviewed by peers and approved. So I'm going through this journal and then the, the data is presented to me and I see at the top there, there's, there's p-value, there's confidence interval, there's chi-squared, and, and I just kind of look for where the star is that means it's significant, and I, but I don't know what those things mean up there. Can you help us kind of sort through what we should be looking at with those three variables? Um. Well, I don't have the same chart in front of me, unfortunately, but I would say that in general, um, often like, you know, you'll get a point estimate and a confidence interval for something like a regression analysis. Um, and, and basically that uh, point estimate is sort of like, like say you were talking about logistic regression analysis. It, it might, you know, be like the odds ratio is two, um, you know, meaning that reference to the, whichever is the reference group, the odds of that event occurring in the, you know, study group are twice as high. Um, the, and then, you know, beyond that, the next thing there's usually what would be a 95% confidence interval. Um, and that sort of gives you an idea of the sort of boundaries of that point estimate. So if those are very, very narrow, um, you know, they, they surround the confidence interval tightly, then you can be pretty sure that that point estimate is, um, you know, some like, you know, if, it, if it's, if, if the odds ratio is two and the confidence interval is 1.9 to 2.1, um, you can be pretty sure that your point estimate is, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood. But if it was like the odds ratio was two and the point estimate was, you know, 1.1 to 13.8, um, you know, your, your actual point estimate could be anywhere in there and still be within a 95% confidence interval. So, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 uh, the point estimate and the confidence intervals give you more information on what, um, you know, the actual, uh, I don't want to say effect size, but it gives you sort of more information on, on what the, you know, where the, the real value is likely to be in there. Whereas the, the p-value is just a p-value. So, you know, it, it, it could be, you know, you, you have a very small, you know, your odds ratio is 1.00009. Um, with a surrounding confidence interval and your p-value can still be significant, even though that might not be much to talk about. So confidence interval mixed with odds ratio is just a bit more believable if they're tight, if they're nice and tight to each other. Is that a oh, fair I, way of looking at it? 
I would say it just gives you more information. Um, you know, it, it tells you what the point uh, interval or the point estimate is, and then it sort of gives you, yeah, a question of like how, you know, how, you know, with that point estimate, how close do we really think it is to that point estimate, right? Sure. And you've kind of been teasing the idea of, of powering a study. You've talked a little bit about how many people, what is the difference in the two groups? How do, how do you sort out what is power and was a, a study well-powered when you're reading it? Oh, geez. Um, yeah, power analysis <laughs> are not my strong suit. Um, I will tell you, though, as a general principle, um, you know, the, the greater the effect size that you are looking for, um, the fewer patients you're going to need. Um, so, um, and that's usually sort of the first step is trying to guess what the effect size is. And I say guess because often there is no, you know, published effect size, right? Like if you were trying to figure out, you know, what, uh, you know, what the impact of a new drug was on acute kidney injury um, and you were trying to look at it in, in between two groups, it, if you don't really have any a priori information about what that effect size is, um, then you're mostly going to be guessing. Sometimes you can go to the literature, like if it's something that's been studied before, um, and say that, you know, we expect the effect size to be this, like, you know, a 15% absolute difference or, you know, 5% absolute difference or whatever. And then, you know, from that, um, you know, you, you would sort of say, okay, well, assuming my, I want a, you know, a beta of 0.8 and, a, you know, I'm using my standard uh, 0.05 threshold that I, you know, this is how many patients I would need in each group. And then, you know, there are also all sorts of considerations about like what, um, you know, what the actual test you're going to be running is. So, you know, this is somewhere where I think it's, unless you're doing something very simple, it's probably reasonable to, to consult a statistician. Um, and the other thing I would recommend for people who are doing power analyses is that uh, in general, especially if you're writing a grant, it's probably not enough to just um, estimate the power for one effect size and one, you know, uh, uh, threshold of significance. In general, you would want to sort of make a table that says, look, these are, if I, you know, had an effect size of this, I would need this many patients in each group. Um, and if it was this, I would need this many and this many, just so that you can demonstrate across sort of a wide range of values that the study that you're doing is likely to be successful um, you know, not just based on that one power analysis that you did where if everything lands just right, you'll get your answer. Um, but, you know, saying, okay, assuming that I'm wrong about this and maybe the effect size isn't so great, you know, how likely am I to detect it? You know, what's my power here and what's, what, what's my power if it's even greater? And so in that way, you can sort of display the power of a study across a, a wider range of values and just, you know, make the argument that you are going to be able to pick up uh, your difference, uh, you know, regardless if you're wrong about the exact effect size kind of thing if that makes any sense. It does when you say it, but I don't think I could say it back. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Somewhere, if any statistician ever listens to this, they're just going to be throwing up in their mouths with that description back. I, wor I worry we're getting more and more into the um, insomniac group of listeners. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I warned you. I, I do know, think I it's, okay. it's a little unfair, though, because, you know, when I read things about like economists and stuff like that. It seems like they can just kind of make up, well, let's assume that, you know, let's assume that there's a $50 million, but you know, they do that all the time in, in economics. And um, if we were to pull that kind of stuff in, in, you know, in our fields, we would get vilified for it. So it, I, coming up with a power analysis and an effect size sometimes is very challenging, especially if what you're studying is, is novel or, or nobody's ever looked at it before. So it is just a, you know, educated guess, which at that point you start to wonder what's the, 
you know, what's the validity if I'm just guessing, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, but at that point, you maybe can come up like, what would be a clinically meaningful effect size? And, you know, like if, you know, you could, you could, there are ways that you can still make a meaningful guess rather than just a, a regular guess. Yeah, it's all about face validity, I guess. I guess. So I want to touch on a meta-analysis because that seems like a, a pretty common uh, review of literature or review of data in a scientific literature. And meta-analysis typically use what's called a forest plot, which Wikipedia taught me is also called a blobogram oh. and got its name from the 1970s because it looks like a forest of lines. So if any of our listeners don't know what I'm talking about, it's the um, one line down the middle and then you have a list of all the um, analysis of uh, studies that have been done previously. And then there'll be like a dot with a bar that either crosses that line or doesn't cross that line. And when I see this thing, I kind of go, okay, where's the final average dot and does it mean anything? Is that a juvenile way of looking at this or are meta-analysis important? Or are they just kind of like overall reviews of what we know so far? Uh, well, first I thought you were gonna say they're called blobograms from the 1970 movies, The Blob, which we can have. <laughs> Highly encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to go out and watch it right now. But the, um, you know, the, the, I'm by no means an expert in meta-analyses, but that's the general gist of it: is that uh, essentially you are um, taking advantage of the fact that there may be um, you know several or a dozen studies on a particular topic, each individually, which may have not been powered to detect the difference, but um, by sort of pooling uh, their uh, effects, you may be able to sort of then say what the you know overall um, you know, average effect of the intervention is across all these studies. Um, and so, um, you know, th there are caveats to that, I mean, including that um, often when studies are done, the authors don't use the exact same definitions of exposures and outcomes. Um, and so, you know, that, that can be a challenge. Um, and then also, you know, if the study, if, if any individual study in that, uh, you know, sort of forest plot of studies wasn't done well, um, then, you know, the, the results are questionable. So, you, you know, these meta-analyses are contingent upon the quality um, of the original studies. And so, you know, it, it's, you know, as you say, it's sort of a summary of, of what is available. And so I think they're useful, um, but, you know, a lot of them, uh, one of the most flabbergasting things I've ever seen was uh, two meta-analyses in a journal on back-to-back -back pages on the same topic, one of which said that, that the intervention was useful and one of which said it was not useful, which, you know, basically boiled down to which studies they included in the meta-analyses. Um, sure. And so just like anything else, it's, it's you know, it, you should take it, you know, with a grain of salt and, and also in clinical context. Dave, I am out of statistical questions. I don't know if you have anything on your mind. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> no, I guess... Well, uh, one of the things we would uh we were looking for too dan is just sort of like you know if let's say you are you know you've come through residency maybe fellowship you've got um you know maybe you've even done some dedicated research time and you kind of have you know the 101 of stats covered where would you recommend somebody goes if they're interested in getting more experience more training um what are the resources that are available and and kind of help us come up with kind of a roadmap if somebody wants to up their stats game um well you know i have my biases uh, and i like am a total statophile um so you know there's a bunch of different statistical packages that are out there um and you know some people like spss because it probably has the best user interface um and some people probably like r because it has the most um you know sort of options but there's probably a trade-off between user interface and um and you know what what the packages can do, and I think Stata is kind of in the middle, where 
it's not too hard to learn to use it, um, but uh, it also can do a lot of things. Um, and so for me, like Stata has all sorts of uh, great, uh, you know, sort of their own files that are associated with the program. So like if I'm not sure how to use a command or, um, you know, I need some help with something, I can just type help this and it'll pull up a page on it. Um, but, but more than that, um, the University of Wisconsin um, and, uh, I'm going to butcher it. I think there, there's a, there are a couple of online resources that basically will um, sort of walk you through the methodological problem um, and the statistics behind it, and then sort of how you pragmatically execute that in a statistical program. And those can be really, really valuable. Because if you have the basic knowledge um, of what you're trying to do, then it sort of becomes a question of, like, I just need to learn when not to do this, and then, you know, when the time is right to actually know how to do it. So I think there's certainly a lot that you can do with, with online um, programming and you know I, I don't use R that much but R is you know open source free software um, the programming I find to be a little more onerous than Stata but you know certainly it's learnable especially if you're say two decades younger than I am um, and uh, and uh, you know that that's the kind of thing where like if you want like that all of the information you would need is available online um, there are some online courses many of which are free including on sites like Coursera um, where uh, Coursera actually has a whole, um, you know, series of courses dedicated to st statistics and methodology, um, some of which are through like uh, prestigious institutions like John Hopkins, um, where you can basically, you know, sort of join the course for free. Um, there are like little mini modules that you have to accomplish. And, um, you know, there's examples of code that you might write. And a lot of, you know, honestly, a lot of the, like, there's nothing new, right? You're, whatever study you're doing, there's an analog out there for it. Um, and often um, you might find that someone has already written code that, you know, can either be used for your study or can be modified subtly to sort of do um, what you want. Um, and the more that you do, the more comfortable you get with it until eventually you sort of have your own, you know, sort of files where like, you know, since I tend to run a lot of the same different kinds of analyses, like, you know, if, if I need to run analysis on different data, um, but, it's in, but it's similar to what I've done before, I can probably do that in pretty short order because, I already have code written. I just have to like do some cutting and pasting. Um, so there's a lot of stuff out there, um, and, and you would be amazed. Uh, you know, people pour their, their their like their lives and their hours into writing all this code, um, and you know, if you ask them for it, they'll usually just give it to you. Like you know, if you email somebody and say, "Hey, I, I saw your paper. I you know I liked it. Would you mind sharing your code um, that you use to run your statistics?" I've never heard anybody say no to that. Like that's that's a People really want to help, and they, they want to share things like code. And, um, so, you know, especially within the trauma community, I, I'm sure that anyone you reached out to, you, you know, you needed some code, they, they'd be willing to share it. I think I would also put in a plug that this is a this is a great uh, area to engage in the East mentoring program, um, especially if you express an interest in finding a mentor who can help with you know, statistical training, statistical methods. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of East members who know how to do this really well and um, would be happy to serve as a mentor, you know, even remotely, I would say. And so um, look into the East mentoring program. Uh, it's a very, very nice benefit of membership and uh, definitely one of the founding uh, reasons for being for the East organization. So I, I just put a plug in for that as well. Yeah, I agree with what Dave says. I think there, there's, you know, there's there's people who can help you um, if you look around. And, and in general, they're always going to be willing to help you out, especially in an organization like East. 
Well, that sounds great. And again, a plug for the new uh, Twitter account. If you want to continue the conversation or you come up with some questions that we haven't addressed today, uh, find us at East uh, underscore Comicast. Well, uh, Dan and Dave, thank you for joining me this morning. Uh, I'm stuck in a snowstorm. I hope the weather is better where uh, you all are. I appreciate <laughs> you taking the time today. Where are you? I'm in uh, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and that uh, big storm that's coming through, by the time this is published, it'll probably be last week, but it's today for me now, um, it's going to dump five to seven inches of snow uh, while the kids are at school. So I'm looking forward to the afternoon commute to go pick them up. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck with that. All right. Great. Thank you. All right. Thanks, you guys. See you later. Bye-bye. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the EAST.